Our three texts this morning clearly have a through line. There is clearly an intention for us to look at lamentation, loss, sorrow, grief. I find it interesting, I feel like with the texts today, last week our focus being um, our invitation to look at the Lord's Prayer through the Gospel story, and even the week before, that was, it was like some nuts and bolts on, this is the best way to live. I feel like we've entered into the season in the lectionary of just some daily guidances for how the Gospels, how Jesus suggests we pattern our lives. Last week, we had this invitation for this daily prayer, the Lord's Prayer. In many ways, it's Jesus' prayer. And Reverend Chris invited us to step into that space and, and make it our own. Interesting, some of the conversations that have ensued this week, I don't know if it matters what sort of end result happens. I think the invitation always is to like step into the space of dealing with it, of like getting your hands dirty and thinking through what we pray, what has been provided for us, and, and the different ways of approaching things and how we can make it our own, how we can make it even more meaningful for us. And I feel like the lessons this morning are that same invitation for how we can step into this space, how we can wrestle with the invitation in the stories to make them our own, to practice living in them. So the first lesson that we heard from Samuel's story, David is lamenting the death of Saul and Jonathan. And without spending too much time setting up the context, Saul was an anointed king of Israel. Jonathan was his son. David and Jonathan were very close. And Saul was threatened by David. David was a military leader. He was charismatic. This is, this is David of David and Goliath. This is also David of David and Bathsheba. David, who is lifted up as this kind of larger-than-life character in the Hebrew scriptures, but David, who clearly was close with God, David, who was beloved by God, even in the fullness of the choices that he made in his life, both those that we might say were wonderful and those that we might say were a little questionable. But David's life is in danger, and yet he refuses to go on the offensive to attack King Saul, but Saul is killed. He does die. And David, very publicly and very personally, laments. He gives voice to his sorrow and his grief. He gives voice to his despair. The piece that the choir so beautifully sang from Ezekiel is another extension. Like The, the text says that it's a, a keening lament. There's another um, lament of the royal line. And then we have Jesus gathered with his disciples. The bit we hear from John's gospel, this happens in the context of the Last Supper, of the last time that we know Jesus will be gathered with his friends, with these 12 guys that he has been working with, living with, teaching, healing among, and performing miracles with. 
He has this time at a meal, and he's, it's like he's like pouring out all the final thoughts. He's like offering all the last bits of wisdom. Whether or not he knew exactly how things were going to unfold in the next few days, it seems, especially in, in John's take here, that, that he does know. The, the Gospel of John really characterizes Jesus as that, um, a very wise figure who's like human, but also kind of you know, like the Jesus who walks on water. So Jesus is preparing his friends. Hey guys, in a little while, you won't see me, and then in a little while, you will see me again. It, that, that phrase is repeated over and over in this text. It tells us that it was important to John, who was writing the story down, that those that were living at the time in which he was writing heard it, and then we hear it 2,000-ish years later. In a little while, you won't see me, and then in a little while, you will see me. Jesus is offering his friends the best preparation that he can for what is going to happen, for the darkness, the despair, the grief that they will experience when he dies. But then he's offering them that bit of hope to look forward to. Because with God, the impossible is possible. We know that not long after this meal, Jesus is crucified and buried and laid to rest in the darkness of the tomb. We know that these guys that he's eating with, these, his friends, they, they scatter. For fear makes sense but we know that it's three days later that mary and depending upon the gospel some of the other women show up at the tomb and they show up to continue the practice of lamentation they show up to offer their devotion they show up to sort of cry their way through the next bit of life because they have lost someone that they love dearly they show up, they step into, they are preparing to voice their grief, and yet, the impossible happens. And as the stories, they all have slightly different ways of saying it, but for the most part, it is Mary, Mary was often known as Mary the Magdalene, who shows up and hears Jesus call her by name. And she knows something life-altering, earth-shattering has truly happened. Because Jesus died, and Jesus is alive. There's a lot in this space, in our sacred stories, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, where we break bread together and share wine together. There is a lot in which we put our trust that, like, something else bigger and beyond us is going on here in these stories. It's going on here in this faith life we are invited to walk with. Jesus offers this metaphor, this analogy in this section, which I find amusing in a way. He says that the despair that you are going to feel is just like the, the distress the woman feels when she is anticipating the pain of childbirth. And then a baby is born, 
life once again comes into our world. And as Jesus says, the woman forgets the experience because the joy and the hope overcome. I believe every woman has their own experience of childbirth, so I don't mean to speak for everyone. And I also um, want to give credit. I, I turn to this author, Brendan Byrne. Um, he's written some scripture, some gospel commentaries, and I, I like to read his, his texts. And, and he says about this, I quote, It is really for women who have gone through this experience to assess the aptness of the image. I have even more respect for him, <laughs> having read that, and also just aware of who it was that is writing down these stories. Anyway, that aside, um, speaking from my own experience, it's, uh, I'm speaking from my own experience, not for everyone else's, but I would say that the experience of childbirth for me was intense and all-consuming body, mind, like every thought was all focused in this one way. Like there was no room for anything else to be in there. There was an intensity to it. And when I hold that alongside the ways in which Jesus is offering us some advice about how to deal with grief, with loss, with sadness, I think that in the early days in particular, it is all-consuming. Every thought bringing you back to that person, or maybe that experience that was traumatic in a way that has led to loss. Grief happens when we lose people we love, but grief also happens with some of the normal changes that happen in our lives. I think of that, too. At the, at the end of every school year, there's celebration, but then there's also a little bit of how that, that year is done now. And then in the fall, there is excitement as kids are going back to school, and they're one year older, one new grade. And, and I, I also see there's a little bit of, I'm, I'm sad that it's not going to be like it was before. So there are a wide range of experiences that we Hold that ask our grief. So childbirth for me is a very intense experience, very focused, and then something new. Birth, new life, a new human being in the world. And especially for first-time parents, I would say. There's nothing that can prepare you for what that is. I think that's true whether one births their own child or whether one f creates family in a different way. I want to share some words from this book, um, fairly popular book on death and dying, written by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler. They also wrote a book called On Grief and Grieving, which I commend to you. Um, but the introduction, the foreword, was written by Maria Shriver. And I want to share some of her words from the foreword with you. She says, We need time to move through the pain of loss. We need to step into it, really to get to know it, in order to learn how to live with it. In essence, that's what grief is. 
It's the opening up to the exquisite pain of absence. It's the moment when you stop trying to move on or change how much it hurts and just let it out. However, there is a natural resistance that we all run up against. I think that there is a fear that if you start crying, you are never going to be able to stop. You don't go on the same, but you do go on. You learn that other people have gone through it. You find hope in their journeys. That's really what grief has taught me, she writes, that I can survive. I used to be afraid that if I experienced grief, it would overcome me and I wouldn't be able to survive the flood of it. But if I actually felt it, I wouldn't be able to get back up. It's taught me that I can feel it and it won't swallow me whole. But we come from a culture where we think people have to be strong. I'm a big believer in being vulnerable, open to grief. That is strength. You can't know joy unless you know profound sadness. They don't exist without each other. We're invited to step into that space, to give voice to the sadnesses, to the loss, to the grief. And we're invited to do that, holding on to the hope and the joy Jesus has gone here first, that Mary Magdalene and the others have gone here first. Stepping into the hope that comes with new life. Stepping into the possibility of the impossible resurrection. 